0: Hey, folks. This is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of Black workers. Today's episode of Black Work Talk is different. We live-streamed the show as a joint effort with Dissent Magazine's podcast, Belabored. Belabored's co-hosts, Michelle Chen, and Sarah Jaffe, and I were joined by a steward Robin D.G. Kelly. Robin's book, Hammer and Ho?, details the organizing work in the Birmingham metropolitan area during the 1930s, where key Black workers were communists and worked with the Communist Party to improve the living conditions in Jim Crow, Alabama. Because of Robin's knowledge of the region's history, we thought he would be an excellent guest to have on the show, given the work organizing at the Amazon warehouse outside of Birmingham. And we were right. Robin, Michelle, Sarah, and I had a wide-ranging conversation flowing from the current organizing in Bessemer, to the relationship between Blacks and the Communist Party in the 1930s, to racial capitalism, to building stronger ties between the Black community and the labor movement, and more. It's wonderful to be a part of the conversation. I think you'll enjoy the show. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you key voices building Black worker power in the workplace, and in the neighborhood. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, small or large, and become part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with worlds of insight who you might not hear otherwise. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrade's Facebook page. Hey everybody.
1: Hello.
0: How you doing? So <laughs> welcome to the special live edition of Descent Belabored Podcast and organizing upgrades, Black Work Talk. My name is Stephen Pitts. I'm co-host of Black Work Talk. I'm so, so, so very excited to be here. And thanks to you, Michelle and Sarah, for joining us on the show. It be a wonderful, it should be a wonderful broadcast. Um Sarah Jaffe is co-host of the Belabored Podcast, a reporting fellow at Type Media Center. And the author, most recently, of a new book, which is a very good book, by the way, Michelle, Michelle, well done. It's called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exhausted, Exploited, and Alone. It's published by Bold Type Books. And Michelle Chen, also co-host of, of Belabor podcast, she's a contributing editor, writing, writer of the nation and in these times, and a member of the editorial board of dissent, and sometimes... How often is the question now, Michelle? Sometimes, Professor at City College of New York. Y'all, once again, thanks for being here. I'm so happy to be with you today.
2: Yeah. Um, thank you, Stephen, for having us on your, like, beautifully produced, I'm really jealous of that intro sequence, um, show. So we're all really excited, obviously, because of the historic fight of Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, which, in case you have been under a rock and somehow heard about this podcast anyway, um, is only the biggest thing in labor in the last year, two, five, who knows? Um, And shortly, we're going to welcome Robin D.G. Kelly on screen, who is the author of several books you should read on Black struggle in the U.S. and beyond. But first, we are in a period of uprising, protests, all of these things. It may not feel like it right now because we're all in Zoom lockdown hell. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the conditions that Black workers are facing as we sort of kick off our conversation here. So Black workers have obviously been leaders of the Fight for 15. Um, Black essential workers have been at the core of so many fights in this pandemic, not just in Bessemer, um, from the Economic Policy Institute, I learned nearly one in three Black workers would see a raise if the minimum wage went up to $15 an hour. Not that we can count on Congress to do that anytime soon. But Black workers are also more likely to be in essential work categories, meaning they're unable to work from home, leading to unequal exposure to COVID-19, and also more likely to be in job categories where they are lost their jobs due to the virus, and least likely to be in the category of safely though maybe bored, working at home. So in response to all of this stuff, people are starting to really talk about racial capitalism. So Stephen, can you explain what racial capitalism means and where the term comes from? Do
0: you want a, a two-second explanation or <laughs> a four-second explanation? How do you want to go on that?
2: A little bit longer than two or four well,
0: seconds. We'll, we'll go six, okay? Um, all right. but, but seriously, I think in the last kind of maybe four or five years, there's been much more talk about the idea of racial capitalism, but actually, it's not a new new term, a new phenomenon, a new analysis at all. In some ways, you can go back to the writings of W. B. Du Bois and his book he wrote in the 1930s, I think in 1935, actually, on Black Reconstruction in, in America that talked about kind of how slavery was, was foundation, the founding of, of the United States. But also even since then, we had books written in the late 60s by Eric Williams, Slavery and Capitalism by Walter Rodney how Europe undeveloped Africa, by Manning Marable, how capitalism undeveloped America, that talked about the interconnections of racism and capitalism. I think that notion of interconnectivity is the best way to start looking at racial capitalism. The idea that they don't simply periodically touch one another, but foundational to the development of racism is a question of a capitalist political economy. Equally important, foundational to the idea of developing capitalism is, is structural racism that two really cannot be separated. You might say that when we talk about racism, it occurs in the context of a certain political economy. And when people talk about how capitalism unfolds, how, how, how it has unfolded, it unfolds because of racism. Um, so those to me are the, the most crucial things to look at initially, and in l- looking at racial capitalism. What's fascinating too, is, this is a slightly detour. I think for a lot of reasons it may go beyond the scope of this one conversation we have. Is that a lot of ways people talk about racial capitalism, but I think they focus a lot on history as to the origins of this country, which is clearly important, but we have less of an insight around capitalism and the black condition today. I say in my snarkier days that people will talk about racial capitalism and forget about capitalism. So I think it's really important to look at the question of how this notion of economic exploitation is fundamental The question of the Black condition today.
3: Yeah. Um, I think it's also not a coincidence that we're seeing um, this surge in Black Lives Matter protests coinciding with the disproportionate impacts of the pandemic on the Black community and communities of color more broadly, um, as well as um, this heightened uh, activity that we see among frontline workers. Um, And you really see sort of the intersection of racial capitalism and how it affects. Uh, public health right um, um issues of uh not just uh not just economic justice but really um, sort of economic sovereignty and um, this idea of um, self-determination right and uh, what it means for workers to have dignity at work um, I was just looking um when I was reading up on in preparation for today's discussion, I was just looking at the economic platform of the movement for black lives and looking at how um, they really foreground uh, the need for some kind of state intervention um, in order to advance a racial justice agenda. Um, looking at things like um, state sponsored programs for jobs, um, you know, decent work. Um, efforts to not just raise working standards across the board, but also looking at um, how to really seed uh, the foundation for worker empowerment um, with a focus on racial equity, so protecting the right to organize, um, expanding the right to organize, um, and understanding that um, within the constraints of the National Labor Relations Act, many workers today are extremely hamstrung in terms of um, the actions they can take to organize collectively, to have um, any kind of collective voice, to seek legal recourse against attacks on the right to organize. And Amazon workers in Bessemer are at the core of that. Um, and it's, um, I, you know, I remember reading some reports saying that, uh, Alabama is sort of an unlikely place for a union drive uh, and Amazon to get this far. But um, we're going to see later with our discussion um, with uh, Professor Kelly that um, really it's it's not coincidental at all, right, um, that all these things are happening in the South. And there have been so many efforts um, to really look at and sort of dissect, you know, why can't we organize the South, right, over the years? Um, and we're coming up on that question again and, um, you know, the outcome of the election is still uh, yet to be yet to be seen, but um, it's it feels like um, this is a really momentous um, uh, momentous opportunity, really for to really tie all these strands of um, racial and economic justice together.
2: Yeah, although I also want to like you know remind us that that the South is not sort of the place where racial capitalism happens, and here in New York City, where we are, um, that it's not a problem. Um, We are still, I think, one of the most segregated cities in the country, right? And that shows up in what jobs people do and who is in and who is out of things. I've been watching, of course, the sort of excluded workers organizing that's been going on around the New York state budget and who are the excluded workers, right? They mostly don't look much like me.
0: And, And you're right in terms of the fact that there's no sort of lock on racial capitalism in the South. The idea of having this kind of broader analysis of social systems means any place in the world you will find racial capitalism. It may come out differently given the, the, the particular details of those locales, but still you have this notion of, of where we see capitalism and racism is impacts. And if you look at kind of the nature of black work in America, about 46% of, of all black workers in three sectors, in retail and in private sector healthcare and social services and the public sector, which means that if we could radically transform work in those three sectors, we'd impact half of the black community. So a lot of times, it's this, this what I call artificial separation between black issues and worker issues. And the reality is that you know we always say that we don't we don't live to work, we work to live. And, and so to the extent we're trying to a plug for your book, maybe it should be a subtitle, maybe Sarah, another subtitle. I don't know, but to the extent that 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 we're trying to actually improve the condition of Black folks and and, and trying to kind of free Black folks. That has to mean freeing the nature of Black work. And it means that we don't have all Black sectors. And so we need to improve the sectors where Black folks actually are. Mm -hmm. Those are important ones.
3: looking at the the fight against Amazon, which, of course, is not certainly not limited to the South. I mean, um, both Sarah and I have been talking to Amazon workers right here in New York, on Staten Island. Right. Um, Who are the subject of uh, extremely targeted and vicious and really racially targeted attacks on um, the efforts to organize there. Right. So um, what Amazon has done uh, in an odd way is sort of um, help to galvanize a nationwide movement simply by nature of um, you know, the size and scope of its commercial hegemony, right? Um, We now have uh, warehouses across the country where you see workers rising up against the same types of um, uh, sort of uh, exhausting, uh, extremely stressful, um, often uh, like physically uh, dangerous uh, conditions at work, right? And there's sort of a broader cry for dignity, right? And uh, some kind of uh, some kind of fairness at work. I mean, um, Amazon has consistently touted uh, the fact that, it, you know, it has a base wage of $15 an hour, um, which was, of course, um, a product of a lot of public pressure in the first place. But, um, you know, for a lot of these workers, the issue isn't just about wages, right? Um, you know, if, if you look at, um, you know, the, 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 um, uh, in the context of the overall decline of organized labor in this country, um, union representation uh, among Black workers—right, Black workers—are are more likely than any other racial category, right, to uh, to uh, be be represented by unions, to be members of unions, and um, and that um, kind of speaks to uh, both the desire as well as, um, I guess, sort of the unfulfilled promise of of um, our, you know the way organized labor works today, um, the constraints it faces. Legally and um, and the need to really look more expansively at at organizing and shop floor organizing and and what that means for the broader kind of community and the community of interests um, that uh, that Black workers face at every level, right? Whether it's um, you know uh, having a voice at work or um, you know being able to lead you know healthy dignified lives, having access to decent schools, right, and having um, opportunities to um, you know, uh, enjoy the same level of citizenship as um, any of their peers.
0: I so. think it's also important that we talk about Amazon as a starting point. We've looked at warehousing, the kind of industry, the warehousing industry. While Blacks are about 13% of the overall workforce, they represent right 20% of the workers in warehousing. And so, once again, we, we can talk about how this question of the expansion of the state of capitalism with the increasing reliance on logistics is tied up with the question of Black work and Black life. And so to the extent we're talking once again about trying to improve the, the the living conditions for kids whose parents work in warehouses, it means transforming those situations. And equally important, the problem stems from a lack of power. At the extent we see bad conditions in Amazon, other sort of situations, it's, it's only because the employers, the bosses, to be jargonistic for a second, they want to have those conditions. And to the extent they can do that, they will do that. And so the solution is building power. It's not getting our fair share of Blacks managing a warehouse, not getting some Black Amazon warehouses. It's actually saying, can the workers in a warehouse have the capacity to say, we're working here. This is how we want to work. And we will insist that this happens.
3: Yeah. Um- Speaking of warehousing, I mean um, Amazon's injury rates are, you know, now um, sort of insanely high, even by warehousing industry standards, right? So we see Amazon actually dragging down uh, the conditions of work um, in that sector, right? Um, and um, and more broadly, I mean, uh, you know, Amazon fulfillment centers, warehouses, uh, that that kind of um, that kind of work has really absorbed a lot of the. Um, joblessness that has resulted in the fallout of the pandemic. And even before that, um with deindustrialization, you had many workers who perhaps once were union workers at factories or um, plants in their communities. Um, and Bessemer is a part of that that narrative as well, right? Um, you know, these were once uh, industrial hubs, right? and um, and deindustrialization, globalization the um, general uh, decline of these places has created kind of fertile ground for Amazon to exploit.
0: You know, while well, well, Amazon's kind of a hot topic for today, uh, literally today, and the kind of the moment we're in, it's important for me to think about and talk about and have discussions around the question of the large issue of the Black working class, and I mentioned some of the numbers in terms of where Black folks are located, but beyond that, I it's a fascinating book, God, long ago, um, is by a historian named Earl Lewis. And he was looking at the issue of the development of the shipbuilding um, industry in Virginia. And he taught, this is in kind of the, the, the Jim Crow era, and he talked about how that as you built out the industry, that in some ways is a f- function of capitalist development. You have relationship between workers and managers and bosses. But because of Jim Crow in the South, he had a racialized hierarchy in the workforce. So, what developed in this case cases, what he called a racialized class consciousness, where you saw kind of a racial hierarchy, Black people doing menial work, white folks being bosses, but it wasn't simply a racial hierarchy, it's a class hierarchy. I think that notion of kind of racialized class consciousness needs to discuss more and more and more and more. So, when we talk about the nature of Black racial and economic kind of exploitation, we see how class fits into the story itself. Because too often what happens, we limit the, the analysis to simply the racial dimension. And, and a couple of things happen when we limit things to the racial dimension. First, the solution is to simply de it, which means have black managers. But also, I think, um, in looking at how activists come into the movement, they come into the movement in a context. And to the extent that they see the world described being a, a purely or a narrowly racist world, they won't see how class impacts the world they really fighting. So to the extent that we can have a broader, I'll say more nuanced, more accurate view of the world, we can talk about race and class. It means that the new kind of activists will begin to see the world, not just through a racial lens, but through a more accurate lens that looks at both race and class as being deeply, deeply intertwined.
2: Should we bring on our special guest now? Um, We should. Do you want to? There we go. Look, it's Robin. So I think Stephen's in charge of reading a proper intro, right?
0: And we discussed, We I had a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> introduction that will take at least 10 minutes to do, but Robin said, don't do it. So I'm, I'm just going to say that Robin D.G. Kelly, he's a professor of history at UCLA. And um, beyond that, he's been incredible, both scholar in the neuroscience of the world, but simply mover in the world itself. And when we talk about some of the important issues Facing us in 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 different venues that most folk read, not some strange academic journal. Robin's there, bring both nuance to conversations and depth of conversations and historical sweep. So, Robin, thanks a lot for joining us. I'm really glad you're here.
1: Thank you so much. And I'm with three of my favorite people. I mean, in terms of who I read and listen to, I'm just I'm in awe. I Have to say, in awe.
2: Well, we're very, very happy you're it's here happy. and we want our listeners to know you can put questions in the chat wherever you're listening, watching, and we will uh, take those as we go on. But first, I think Michelle is going to kick us off with a question for Robin.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah, well, um, you know, we we thought of you when we were thinking about people to bring on as, as guests because... Um, Uh, Just in light of the brilliant research that you've done, uh, looking at sort of the deep historical roots of um, labor and and particularly uh, left uh, insurgencies uh, in the South and particularly in Alabama. So um, this seemed right in your wheelhouse. um, But, um, you know, I should. Uh, maybe just ask a pretty open-ended question, which is as you watch events unfold in Bessemer right now, um, you know, I I cheated a little bit when I was prepping for the show and I looked up all the references to Bessemer in Hammer and Ho and was kind of like cataloging them. Um, But, um, you know, in light of uh, the fact that you um, have really shed a lot of historical light on uh, activism in Bessemer and that part of the South um, in a much earlier period in labor history, uh, what can you tell us about events unfolding there today?
1: Sure. Uh, before I answer the question, I just want to add a couple of things. One, um, you know, Hammer and has gotten a lot of, you know, attention as a result of events in Bessemer. Uh, but I want to point out a couple other books that people should check out. Um, Bobby Wilson wrote this amazing book called America's Johannesburg, which is about Birmingham. Uh, Horace Huntley is really the premier historian of the International Mind and Multi Workers Union in um in Bessemer, Birmingham area. I'm so glad um, Steve mentioned my, my really dear friend, Earl Lewis, his book, In Their Own Interests. Um, there's a whole body of scholarship that's out here that sort of tells this story. And by the way, um, do not buy my book from Amazon. <laughs> I'm just saying, you can get it for free if you go to the UNC Press blog. We're giving it away, the ebook. So I'm just saying, don't buy my books from don't buy my books from Amazon. But having said that, um, the events I, I was so appreciative of the fact that you sort of you all of you let off with the fact that the South is um, the place to be expected to blow up. It's not necessarily backwater. It's a place where um, they have the most intense uh, right to work in anti union laws for a reason because they are afraid of of workers because they suppress interracial movements for democracy. I mean, this is what they do. Um, In Alabama in particular, I mean, we see the right to work laws that it came into being uh, in the 2000s, but Alabama had a right to work law in 1953. And 2016, as a result of voter suppression, they were able to enshrine right to work in the constitution. So this is why um, things pop off in Alabama because it has a history of union organizing. Um, even before the 1930s, the Knights of Labor, the United Mine Workers, they were all active interracial movements in the South in the late 19th century. The 30s and 40s, of course, is the height of organizing in the mines and the mills, the factories, and even in the countryside, in the rural areas, uh, where cotton pickers went on strike in 1935, trying to get a dollar a day for picking cotton um so there's there's a long history and that history depended on a couple of things one it depended on radical organizations like the communist party uh that stepped up and you know organized workers that were that people were told couldn't be organized of course black workers have always been organized maybe not in unions but certainly in churches and mutual benefits associations and all kinds of ways um But the other thing that that made a difference in the South was uh, the National Labor Relations Board, Uh, the fact that uh, the New Deal, which was a product of working class struggle across the country, uh, did create labor law, uh, did create um, the right uh, to organize as a basic principle. I mean, this is what happened um, as a result of a federal government that no matter how weak The effort might have been, you know, sort of uh, gave um, win behind the sales of union organizing. Uh, And then as a result of that, whenever the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, which was the main um, corporation, kind of the Amazon of its day uh, in Alabama, when it tried to form company unions and extract white workers through race baiting, they won some, but they didn't win. A lot of the white workers realized it wasn't in their interest. And so the fact that interracial organizing was even possible, led by Black workers, this is a lesson that we have to take. And what we're seeing uh, in, at the, the warehouse in Amazon right now is, you know, a, a union that's, uh, or a workplace that's 85% Black, uh, mostly female, um, really at the forefront and, and not buying the kind of um, propaganda that the jeff Bezos and Amazon machine uh, presents one of the points that you made earlier uh was the fact that there's this move for fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage um, but Amazon's position is that we already pay fifteen dollars and thirty cents minimum wage so we're we're the good guys uh without ever admitting that warehouse workers in Alabama make twenty dollars an hour because they're union you know so, and, and the workplace conditions are not as bad, and workers are not um, you know dying and being denied bathroom breaks and being work, and working really long hours, uh, so you know this is an opportunity right now that if if the union wins this election and even if they don't win the election, um, what is happening in Alabama is the beginning of what we're seeing now, which is a real kind of resurgence. Of a new renewed labor movement. I had a quick question.
0: Um, now I, I thought about in some ways post this election. One question is kind of the, the justification of Alabama. How do you kind of bring kind of the, the, the contested battle in Georgia um westward to Alabama? But I thought also, Robin, in your work that you focused on the role of the Communist Party in being the, the kind of a backbone element of the radical organizing in the 30s and 40s there. And we don't have that now. And so when you think about the nature of trying to push forth progressive, good left organizing, in the absence of some sort of part of the Communist Party, how do you th- see things unfolding? What things, how do you say it, what thing do you think we should look at that we could do given the, the vacuum that does exist politically?
1: Right. Well, you know, that's a that's such an excellent question. And no one has ever asked me that question before you're the first and this is one of the best questions on the planet and this is why because I think you know and I'm gonna I'm gonna complicate things a little bit. I think that you know while the Communist Party and all the other left organizations that were doing important labor work, Trotskyists, some of the anarchists, um, the split that despite that and even in the 1970s when you had like a whole range of Maoists, Marxist-Leninist organizations doing industrial concentration work, they had a weakness. And one of their weaknesses was sectarianism. I mean, there was a way in which some of the battles between Trotsky's and communists undercut the important labor movement work they are doing. Alabama is a little different because people didn't have time for that. I mean, people were just busy trying not to get killed. And so their commitment to social justice was so big. Their commitment to labor organizing was so great that they were very successful. Now, on the other hand, in Alabama, the CIO was able to absorb some of the best communists away from the Communist Party into the CIO. They didn't become union bureaucrats, but be, they became you know, union, disciplined union organizers, and that was their focus. The social justice piece kind of fell out. Now, having said that, I've seen so many left organizations implode because of other kinds of issues what we're seeing now and i'm and i'm kind of heartened by it is we're seeing new left formations who are doing labor work it may not look the same so for example left roots um left voices uh members of dsa labor um there are people who are out there doing some really interesting work politically with workers not just um you know in, in small rooms you know just arguing with each other. Uh, and I think we're gonna see more of that. More importantly, I think that if we look again to use Alabama as an example, so many people who came into the Amazon warehouse to work were also active in the um, anti-police rebellions in um, June of 2020, and uh, throughout July. And they, they came to union meetings with Black Lives Matter pins on and shirts. And in other words, they were radicalized by other things. And they they saw the connection between state violence, precarity, all the things that you all were talking about in terms of like the conditions of Black workers is about the conditions of life. It's about the ability just to live. It's It's what will happen if a $15 an hour minimum wage were really implemented for all those workers who are living in poverty, they're still gonna be barely in poverty anyway with $30,000 a year, but nevertheless, that they're beginning to see or or have seen, I shouldn't say beginning to, have seen the connections between um, economic exploitation, injustice and racism uh, and and gender inequities in terms of of, reproductive labor, in terms of um, un, unwage, unpaid labor, stuff that you know, Sarah beautifully writes about in her book, um, and their ability to actually sustain themselves as a movement to create workplace justice and workplace equity. So, all that there is like, like on the table right now. And what we need is an analysis uh, alongside all this movement work that is not tied or tethered to old ways of thinking, but to the new conditions of labor and work right now. Um, So that we can think of racial capitalism as the the fundamental foundation for the kind of oppression that all of us, irrespective of race or gender, uh, all of us in the class experience and have to push back against.
2: So I'm just struck by the, uh, the comment that just went on screen from my old buddy, Ben Spate, who once took me to an organizing meeting in Savannah, Georgia, with port truck drivers, speaking of black workers in the South and, uh, a workforce in the South that actually has a long history of racial justice organizing. Um, so before I get back to that question, um, we want to pause for a second. We know everybody and their mother is asking for your money right now, and we understand that a lot of people are broke. But if you do want to support our wonderful podcasts, we've been working for years to bring you news and analysis on the labor movement by the people who make it happen, and it would really help us all a whole lot if you would support us. You can support us at patreon.com slash belabored, and you can support Black Work Talk at, if you go to bit.ly slash blackworktalk. And now my question is actually going to be about these other workforces in the South that are organized. Um, Poultry plant workers have been really integral to the organizing process at the Bessemer Amazon facility. There's also mine workers in Alabama now on strike. Um, So even though sort of everybody's attention is kind of laser focused on Bessemer, there's a lot going on all around right here. So could you situate the Bessemer moment in this broader labor struggle in this part of the country?
1: Right, right. In fact, I would just uh, speak specifically about the the Warrior Mine strike in, um, in Tuscaloosa County, which is about 30-minute drive, I think, from from Bessemer. Uh, and so right now, um, about 11 workers uh, at the Warrior Met, uh, Mine went on strike demanding a better contract. About one third of those workers are Black, these mine workers. And, you know, it's a classic kind of neoliberal story where um, the the Warrior Met mines were owned by another company called Walter Energy. In 2016, they went bankrupt, sold the company. The company then, you know, renegotiated the contract or reimposed, I should say, a contract and imposed a $6 an hour wage cut. Uh, plus cuts in benefits, plus cuts in pensions, uh, and then after that, made back profits. 2020, the the company made profits when all these other companies <laughs> were losing, and still, um, they're they're trying to renegotiate a contract, and the company's coming back uh, with more wage cuts and more cuts of protections and more cuts of benefits. And the cat who runs it, the CEO um, Walter Scheller, I think his name is Sch- Walter Scheller III. Uh, made four million dollars last year. One third of it in bonuses. So you've got these workers who work in twelve-hour shifts, six days, sometimes seven days a week. They they got three vacation days, three holidays rather, over the year. And they're like, we can't even see our family. We're doing the work. You know, we're actually taking the coal out the mines. That that alone is bad enough. You know, we need to keep the coal in the mines, but that's another story. They're doing this work and and, they are, and their wages are just plummeting while the CEO is making $4 million a year. That is, that's the kind of, um, kind of profane uh, system that, you know, we could talk about Jeff Bezos because he gets a lot more attention, but this is happening all over. Uh, you got steel workers on strike right now in the Allegheny uh, area. You've got, um, certainly poultry workers have been, have taken the lead. Um, and I think all this tells us, and I think an important lesson, and that is that, you know, though we're, we're on the verge of what may appear to be kind of renaissance of the labor movement a kind of new insurgency, the fact is if we kind of go back, and all of you know this because you've been involved with labor for so long, there's not been a year that there hasn't been intense labor struggles. (laughs) It just has not been a year that hasn't happened. And I think we could learn from some of the lessons. We don't have to go back to the 30s and 40s. We can just go back. Uh, In fact, one of my favorite stories to talk about, is we can go back to to 1996. Uh, And to me, one of the models besides the poultry workers uh, is the the workers uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina, who Went up against Walmart um, uh, to unite, um, and one of the things they were able to do was to really build a community labor strategy uh, to to you know turn uh, what was um, what appeared to be a labor uh, struggle into a struggle for basic civil rights. One that got the support of the clergy, support of civil rights organizers and got this the um city council in, in uh Greensboro to uh to vote for overwhelmingly support uh a minimum wage for all incoming uh, living wage legislation for all incoming um uh companies after walmart and and they won that uh but if, but you can't win if you don't have a deeper solidarity beyond your workplace. And I think this is really the important lesson for all the struggles we're talking about, all of them. I mean, Nissan, the Nissan struggle in Mississippi was unfortunately a loss. And part of that loss had to do with um, an inability to really build solidarity even beyond those Nissan workers in, in Mississippi, as well as the, the kind of vicious anti-union policies on the part of Nissan. And meanwhile, um, we don't, we're not always quick to participate in the kinds of consumer boycotts and other things that's required to support these kinds of labor initiatives. You know,
0: Robin, you mentioned having deep connections with the community and solidarity. I think of a couple of things. One is the fact that I think, in some ways, the whole idea of labor versus community is an artifact of, of our narrowness and our politics. Because in many ways, you know, I mean, I was my last show. Maurice Weeks says, "I'm black twenty four 7 and so you can't separate. That I'm black here, not black here. And so oftentimes the best ambassadors for the union movements to the community are the workers themselves. And oftentimes that's kind of strength we don't utilize. So what happens if we have a kind of narrow, shallow, transactional relationship, not a transformational one. I also think about you, know, you talked about the fact that in the best in a campaign, a lot of folk were coming to union meetings with Black Lives Matter buttons and I thought about the idea of really deeply rooting folk, and you you, you had a, a concept you talked about within that essay, we are who we seem, by hidden transcripts. Mm-hmm. So notion that, that that a lot of times we want to have the big stuff, with the big stuff, take down a statue, have a demonstration, have a big mobilization. But we, the key issue is how do folk fight on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. How do you recognize that and tap into that to build a larger struggle?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I totally agree. And Um, And sometimes, and that's where strategy comes in. That's also where um, recognizing the kind of everyday forms of resistance that people engage in at work. Uh, Little pieces, bits of mutual aid, for example. You know, you think about what it means to be a a warehouse worker and having to walk uh, miles, literally, uh, and how individualizing, atomizing that can be. Um, And what Amazon workers, and 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 even before the kind of formal um organizing um, of the retail wholesale department store uh, union, but the the kind of the Amazonian um, uh, uh, solidarity organizations, they were trying to figure out ways to work together to to change the labor process, to help each other, to help a worker who's who's feeling sick and tired. That's no different from the way that tobacco workers, uh, on the line would help you know women who might have been um, pregnant, for example, or sick, you know to take up their task. That's solidarity. I mean it's, it's and that's exactly what. once you see those kinds of strategies, then it also helps to develop new sorts of strategies uh, and new kinds of demands to change the workplace. You know, and just one thing I s- want to add to that, um, and that's about the the division between kind of community and labor. You're absolutely right. It is a false division. Uh, one of the things that we do have to pay attention to are the class divisions within our communities. And um, you started out ta- uh, mentioning the, um, uh, the the voter suppression laws in Georgia. And one of the things I was talking about recently uh, was the fact that in the 1930s in Alabama, um, CIO workers, mo- many of whom were black, were the ones who were running the right to vote clubs, which were or you know trying to do ro- voter registration in the 30s and 40s, especially in the 30s. Uh, the black elite that wanted to maintain the franchise for black elites <laughs> formed an oppositional organization, yeah. like a civic f- federation that was like, we don't want those Negroes to have the vote because, you know, we're the ones that deserve it and we're the ones that can keep them in line. So one of the things that we have to pay attention to is like the relationship between that story and what happened in June of 2020 when Jeff Bezos said, you know what, I'm going to give $10 million to all these Black organizations, you know, as well as ACLU. I'm going to give money to Urban League, and NAACP. What he thought was Black Lives Matter, not the movement for Black Lives, which is a little different. Um, and he gave this money, which is basically a penny, you know, given his, his um deep pockets. But that $10 million bought silence. Because are we talking about the National Urban League's position on the best summer workers? They don't have a position, right? They don't have a position. So there's a lot of organizations. <laughs> and people who can be bought off. And when we think about the the community, that community is also rich with tensions and struggles, and we have to figure out what side we're on.
3: Um, This discussion of community and and labor alliances and sort of the class divisions uh, in each of those is is really uh, a good segue to our first audience question. Um, This is from China Brodsky um, and, the question is, as a follow-up to the Worker Community Alliances topic, um, can Kelly and others talk about the role of United We Dream, Movement for Black Lives, et cetera, in engaging BIPOC workers' struggles and vice versa?
1: Um, I want others to answer the question, so I'm going to be really brief on on a couple of things. Uh, just just to throw out a couple of things, I think um, a reminder that it was July 20th, I believe, going by memory here, that um, we had the Strike for Black Lives uh, action, which I think is significant. We don't always remember that because it was a whole year ago, not even a year ago. But it was very significant in that a lot of unions uh, had which got the support from amazing organizers. Uh, and of course, the Movement for Black Lives was at the forefront of helping to put that together. Um, you, you mentioned, Michelle, the Movement for Black Lives um, a policy statement which had been updated uh last year as well in August. And it is a powerful agenda that's a labor, it's a working class agenda, you know, a working class agenda that is that does two really important things. One proposes way, ways that state and federal governments could actually put more money in people's pockets, ensure fairness, um support the right to organize and all that, uh, but also figure out ways to support movements and support movements um, much like the Black Manifesto did in 1969, where part of the money for reparations was going to go into supporting organizing campaigns. So they want to support movements. And, and Movement for Black Lives' vision was one that wasn't limited to the United States. They want to end war everywhere, everywhere in the planet. And, you know, one of the great things I love about, you know, organizing upgrades is that, you know, you want to, you you deal with the planet, the whole planet. And so I think these are ways to think about the, the role that they've played, among others. That's just, that's just moving, moving black lives, but I'll stop.
0: I don't have a lot of specific things to mention, but I think of kind of a, a north star on the question of how to activists relate to like, worker struggles. is is It came from a um, the, one of the biographies, uh, autobiography of John Lewis, and he was talking about the um, first efforts of SNCC in Mississippi, and he said, that they went to Mississippi. They got there, they went there to listen, and to pick cotton folk, and live with folk. They didn't come with the answer or the program or the word or the gospel, I think to me it's an important thing because because you may have oftentimes alignments between activist groups and set of Black workers on basic orientations in terms of where, you're going, where you want to go politically. But in terms of how to get there, how you describe it, may be a big gulf between the two, two groups of people. So I think it's really important for, for folks to actually talk to Black workers and work with them. And listen to them and then see how through that kind of developing of deep relationships, you build more power to change the world. To me, super, super important.
2: That makes me think of the there was sort of a kerfuffle on the internets. Robin, having quit Twitter, you miss so much fun. I'm kidding. You haven't missed nothing. Um, about people wanting to boycott Amazon in, in solidarity with the workers. And then the union sort of puts out a statement saying we haven't called for a boycott. And I found myself having these sort of conversations with people who were like really defensive. And I was like, look, you don't ever have to buy anything from Amazon again. Like you are perfectly welcome to never shop at Amazon. But like, if you want to be in solidarity with these workers, it's like Stephen was just saying, you do have to listen to what they're actually asking for and find ways to be in relationship. And that's been complicated because of a pandemic, right? Like I didn't go to Bessemer partly because I had a bunch of other things on my plate. And then because half of the... Three-quarters of the labor reporters and three-quarters of the reporters who aren't labor reporters are already there. And I'm like, okay, they got it covered. Kim Kelly, um, Luis Files Leon from um, Labor Notes, a bunch of other wonderful people were there. But when you can't figure out how to be on the ground there and m- build those relationships, then what relationships can you build closer to home? And, you know, one of the things I was talking to um, some other workers who were organizing, and they were like, you know, the best thing you can do for us is organize your own workplace. Um, And so the ways that these sort of conversations about solidarity do have to involve real relationships and they can't just be sort of like the easiest thing for me to do is declare that I am boycotting Amazon in solidarity with these workers and that that is the thing that I will do and I want to feel virtuous for it. And it's like you can feel great about not shopping at Amazon. Fine. Yes, please buy my book from anything other than Amazon. But to really build relationships about, and to really build organizing, it's gonna take so much more than tweets.
3: Um, This discussion on boycotting Amazon reminds me of um, the way uh, so much of our uh, political activism is often oriented around our role as consumers and not necessarily as workers. And in part that's because we live in a very consumption oriented society, Um, consumer, consumption is basically you know the majority of our economic output um and and i think that um and and i think that also warps um our our notions of class in this country and sort of what is within our power to do as economic citizens right um uh, not just as consumers but as uh, as denizens of a larger broader Uh, workforce in a a broader working class. right? Um, On this issue of worker community alliances, I was just thinking about um, uh, what we had talked about earlier in terms of, um, you know, not sort of uh, creating this artificial dichotomy between, uh, you know, workplace interests and community interests. And I think um, these Frameworks like organizing for the common, or bargaining for the common good, right? And um, what uh, a lot of educators are doing, and educator unions are doing um, around foregrounding, uh, uh, you know, real uh, community issues, um, issues about economic justice that go beyond the workplace, and also um, recognizing that um, people who uh, uh, people who receive public services, who use our schools, right? Um, people who learn at our schools um, and those families are, you know, their interests are not completely divorced or in opposition to um, the interests of uh, the educators in the classroom. Right. Um, In fact, um, you know, understanding sort of the union of those interests is really critical to creating a broad-based mobilization that can really advance um, not just workers, but the the broader labor movement as a whole. Um, And in terms of just, you know, the alliances of different groups and movements, um, I think uh, this this brings us back to Amazon really because Amazon is is both um has both you know monopolistic characteristics as well as monopsonistic characteristics in terms of its really totalizing effect on on the workforce, and um because so many people are sort of um you know under the boot of uh, of Amazon as workers, right? As as well as living under um, sort of the the monopoly of uh, Amazon's effect on retail, right? We all sort of feel the Amazon hegemony, right, in our everyday lives. Um, and the mo- some of the some of the fiercest mobilizations against Amazon, um, outside of workplaces, um, outside of the warehouses, was about Amazon's. Uh, um, Amazon's uh, sort of server services, right? And how they are linked to state violence in many cases and assist police forces and racial profiling and are used to, uh, sur- you know, Amazon has uh, incredible control over extremely powerful technology that is used not just to surveil its own workers, which we see happening right now and their union busting tactics, but also to surveil the rest of us, right? So uh, we all sort of live under Amazon's
2: shadow. Anybody know if StreamYard is on AWS? Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. This was the point, point in the boycott there, right? It was like, oh, this, this web services. But bringing up Amazon Web Services actually brings me to the next question that I wanted to ask Robin, but also the rest of you. Um, so one of the things that happened because of Bessemer is that I'm getting a lot of people asking me if I wanna write about tech workers. And I'm doing big air quotes for those of you who um, are not watching Um, And my first question is always, what is a tech worker? But in thinking about um, the question of innovation and tech companies being, um, sorry, my recorder just died. Um, So tech companies sort of use their, their supposed innovation to justify their horrible working conditions. But of course... The speed up, automation, all of these things that are happening in Amazon warehouses, workers have been fighting against those for a long time. And in fact, like things Amazon workers have said to me sound like stuff that like the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement workers were fighting against the speed up and automation um, in the 60s and 70s on the automobile line. So I'm wondering, Robin, and also Stephen and Michelle, if you have some thoughts about the innovation of um, technology and what it does and doesn't actually tell us about what's happening at, at Amazon right now.
0: A quick thought. Um, the issue isn't that technology. It's control of the technology and the power behind it. You know, Because at one point in time, you know, they had the whole Fordist way of producing things. That was an advancement. okay. And, and so the issue really is in technology is control and power and who actually sets the terms of, of the use of technology.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's definitely true, you know. um, You know, and also technology is designed in uh, a world that's based on capital accumulation for the purposes of capital accumulation. Um, I think that, you know, think about the concept, I mean, this is more abstract, but do you think about the concept of what's a labor saving device? Um historically, especially in terms of the gendering of labor-saving devices, so-called labor-saving devices have actually increased work. Um, they're not, it's not about you know giving people free time, it's about being able to be more productive and efficient. And so I think you know, to go back to Stephen's point, um you know, ideology is really foundational because we live in an ideology where the point of of technology is efficiency, is productivity, uh, and with efficiency and productivity comes surveillance, because you know you you know going back to Taylorism, um, the our whole idea you know and again this is just workplace is to police workplaces. Go go back before Taylor, Taylorism. Go back to the panopticon. I mean the panopticon, of course, um, which you know Foucault writes about, but. Uh, was jeremy bentham's invention uh which we see in prisons as a way to surveil you know prisoners through this 360 degree view was really initially meant to surveil workers from to as peter Linebaugh talks about in his brilliant book um uh, uh the london hanged the whole point is to stop workers from taking things that they feel like they have a right to take like excess wood in a sh- in a shipyard and that sort of thing so We've got to figure this out. So I, I actually, I, to, I want to doubly agree with what with, with Steve was saying because, you know, no one here is a Luddite. No one here wants to sort of um, eliminate new forms of technology. But, you know, at the same time, if technology's purpose is efficiency, productivity, capital accumulation, um, then we have to ask a really hard question. Um, you know, w- why is it that the socialist countries like the Soviet Union in, in its heyday use the same technology, the same concepts of efficiency, the same capitalist principles um, and, this, and produce the same kind of labor alienation? You know, um, And it's, so these are really, I think, critical questions because it's not enough for workers to just control the technology. It's, we've got to interrogate it, investigate it, rethink it, um, and think about, you know, and again, this is not about tech workers per se, but about technology. And, and you have to really, really rethink what technology is supposed to do for us and how we can try to restore our dignity and humanity and our sense of community. And sometimes the very means that allow us to organize, like Twitter, for example, could actually have atomizing effect as well.
2: Say an if so, of Twitter.
3: (laughs) 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 Seeking innovations we could all live without at this point. I really would uh, like
2: to live without.
3: (laughs) Um, I was going to say the, the, uh, it's, perhaps it's not so much technology itself, but sort of mystique around technology and the cultural impacts of living in a highly technologized society. Um, and this notion of, I mean, um, Sarah and I have talked about this before, but like there's sort of a vogue in the labor movement about talking about the future of work, right. And sort of this idea that, you know, in the future, some nebulous future, like workers will become obsolete. And what do we do? And there's a lot of catastrophizing around this idea that, um, Like technology is some sort of uh, this sort of relentless march of progress has some sort of inevitability um, embedded in it and that um, we have no agency as you know members of society or as lawmakers or you know um, or or as workers or unions right to um, exert any kind of control over that and and so I think the the sort of um, the way we're so sort of mystified with technology and and afraid of it in some ways is used to um, manipulate public opinion and to um, and to obfuscate and um, and create this sort of um, uh, this this sort of uh, you know appealing futuristic veneer around very old forms of exploitation right and so um, you know think about all of the so-called tech industry. Uh, forms of work, right, in the so called gig economy that are really just good old fashioned, you know, like casualized labor, right? Um, it's just attached to an app um, instead of, you know, a taxi dispatching company. Or, uh, you know, now they have Uber for care work where you can get your babysitter on sort of like this, you know, care.com. Um, yeah, right. Sort of like this, like, you know, digitized hiring hall, you know, like, so, um, so a lot of this stuff is really just technology used as a kind of fig leaf, mm-hmm. um, for, uh, glossing over some very, uh, deeply historically ingrained, um, elements of, of capitalism.
2: Yeah. I, I, because I brought up the port truck drivers earlier, I feel like I have to go back to like the port truckers were Uber before Uber was Uber, right? The industry got deregulated partly in fact, because, um, Black workers and women were complaining that they were locked out of by a racist union, the good jobs. And so the solution, because it was the 80s, rather than opening, making the union open up and allow people in, they deregulate the whole damn industry. And then suddenly the truckers have to buy their own trucks and they're responsible for all of the costs. And now, yeah, on the East Coast, it is mostly black men drivers. And on the West Coast, it's mostly Latino drivers. And they're all screwed. And they did all this without an app. Because it turns out it's got nothing to do with technology. It's just about deregulation and skirting labor law and exploiting workers of color.
0: It makes me think back to some things that the idea popped up through a lot of our conversations. But I thought back to um, well, because of that, I thought back to World War II and the Pittsburgh Courier put forth the idea of a Double V campaign, the victory over fascism abroad and the victory over racism here at home. And I think that in some ways we're in the same situation today. When on the one hand, we, we're in the middle of an important fight for democracy, the idea of we want to, we need to be able to vote. That's one victory we got to have. But you mentioned earlier that, that you know, Jeff Bezos, said we keep picking on him, by the way, that, that he's giving money to support those efforts um, to, to, to expand voting rights, as are a lot of other corporations doing, or kind of in some ways criticizing what's happening across the different Republican states. But we know those same people won't support ideas of more worker power. And so it's very important, I think, to consistently talk about fighting on two fronts. The One front is the, the, the very important fight for, for democracy, um, but it's important. The other front talks about democracy and power in the sphere of the economy as well. And I'm sure when we go to that kind of battle, we'll lose a lot of our, a lot of our so-called friends. Do we want
3: to move on to uh, an audience question now? Go for it. Okay, Um, so uh, there's a question from, okay, Uh, so Merle Ratner asks, uh, these workers are the essential workers from COVID crisis and demonstrate intersections of labor and community class slash race issues. Is there a way we can use this concept to strengthen our organizing? And I assume he's uh, referring to Amazon workers, so... any takers?
2: Oh, I'll do it then. Um, I love the essential worker distinction because it suddenly gave us this like moment to talk about what work is necessary to actually sustain human life, right? What is the work of, of social reproduction, as we would say? Um, and that That shows us what that is, right? That that social reproduction work is also happening in an Amazon warehouse, right? It is happening in a Walmart. It's happening in a pharmacy. It's happening um, in any number of places, right? It's happening in a grocery store. There was a wonderful article. I'll find the link after I'm done running my mouth um, by a grocery store worker who was talking about the extra emotional weight of like talking to customers who suddenly hadn't seen another person all week. And when we talk about what's essential, we can also talk about all the work that wasn't essential, like, oh, you know, um, Wall Street. I'm not that far away from it right here. So I I think about that. Um, They could just stop working. That would be great. They could permanently stop working. Um, And it, yeah, so it opens up all of these questions about like how we value or don't value the work that's actually necessary to sustain human life and how we can actually like change the way we work really, really, really quickly. Which is great, because we have to, because climate change is coming. And as Robin already said about the coal mines, like we got to leave the coal in the ground and a lot of other things besides. Um, But I think, yeah, I think it's a huge, huge opening for things that we can
1: talk about. Um, Can I add something to that? And and this is actually building on your own work, Sarah. Um, When we think about essential workers, isn't it incredible that uh, the work of household social reproduction is not included? You know, we, we talk about um, the rescue act and these kind of short term, you know, checks that are helping people get by uh, when they're laid off or their, their wages are low or their working hours are low. Uh, but part of the, I think the the beauty of an argument for basic income. Uh, is, if we think of basic income, not as basic income, but wages for housework and housework, not necessarily gendered, always female, but all housework. Then, you know, now we're talking about recognizing the essential work that's being done every day uh, in, in our households, raising our children, um, kids who are online, you know, the um, food. Well, I mean, you know even even if if Amazon workers go on strike, who will be doing the essential work of social reproductions? not just getting a a, a fund drawing into a strike fund, but it's also being able to reproduce labor every single day. So we really need to think broadly about who's an essential worker. And you know, um, and even the the use of essential workers still doesn't quite capture um, Who's essential and who, in fact, is disposable? Because I work. I'm here at UCLA right now. Um, The university is basically shut down. The workers who are essential workers are basically physical plant workers and people who are outside, um, doing you know, basically maintaining uh, the 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 groundscape, the landscape, and cleaning, you know, these buildings and having to be subjected to possible infection uh, inside these buildings. Uh, And when we had fires all over UCLA's campus, at the edge, you know, these terrible fires, they forced cafeteria workers, groundskeepers, and janitors to come in, but faculty and students didn't have to come in, right? So it's essential workers, but really it's sometimes it's a euphemism for disposable workers, those on the front lines. Uh, who are doing work that the university or other corporations say are essential to them, uh, but necessary? But they don't did not treat it as essential because if they were treated as essential, they'd be the highest paid workers around.
2: I cannot tell you how many workers said to me and probably also to you, Michelle, that same thing. Right? They say I'm essential, but actually I feel expendable. Yeah. And I did just want to note on the the care work question. There's money in the covid bill that biden passed that is a direct payment to parents and i had this wonderful moment on twitter sorry i keep bringing up twitter um, where somebody was like panicking about this bill and oh my goodness they're going to give money to parents and doesn't this undo the whole gingrich clinton welfare reform thing and ilhan omar just puts a meme that says yes and i'm like because if we want to talk about like a black workers movement in this country that does not get its due The welfare rights struggle, which was led by incredible women like Johnny Tillman, who had worked in cotton fields and doing laundry and all of this work, and then finally got access to, you know, what was at the time aid to families with dependent children, and so you know they get demonized for that, and we got quote unquote welfare reforms. But I think one of the things we need to pay attention to is this you know, as we move forward from the Biden plan, you know, that that was for one year in this bill, and we need to make it permanent.
3: Um, speaking of child care, um, and this is a good time to uh, read an audience comment. Uh, oh, right, there it is. Uh, when we talk about workers and their wages, we must also talk about unpaid labor, such as child care at home, child care outside the home, and other caregivers, usually women. I remember reporting last year about um, the state of uh, state sponsored childcare centers and how the childcare workers at those I mean those places didn't close of course, right? Even though schools were. Um, and it's sort of like people kind of assumed that the children of the so-called essential workers who are going to hospitals, et cetera, like their children would just like magically find a place to like vanish for like eight to 10 hours a day. And of course, um, these childcare centers were there to really absorb, um, absorb, you know, the childcare burdens of of, you know, those, those workers. And of course, they they themselves um, experienced uh, many other additional burdens that came along with that work, including taking all the safety precautions and the health precautions, often with deeply inadequate funding from the state. And because they are considered, uh, you know, Small business owners, because they own a daycare center in their home, right? They're not, uh, you know, they they're not able to avail themselves of the same protections that go along with um, federal labor standards and um, and uh, you know the federal uh, federally protected right to organize. Um, one glimmer of light in all of that was, of course, the fact that uh, California childcare uh, childcare providers actually. Uh, managed to unionize, right? And they were able to do this through um, a special arrangement under state law. But um, that's just one example of the innovations that are sort of uh, um, born out of necessity, I guess, in the midst of this crisis. Um, And that's, um, and of course, you know, childcare providers had been trying to organize for years, right? But it was really the pandemic that really, um, you know, showed, you know, what was at stake um, in that, the sort of, uh, um, the sort of very delicate balance of you know labor and community interests and family that care workers are are holding up every day.
0: Now, uh, there's actually a part two to that that comment question. Um, it, it says, "Where is the feminist movement when it comes to these issues of working class people? Where is the feminist movement when it comes to this union organizing of Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama?" Now, when I saw that question, I kind of paused a second because I'm not sure what the question actually. Is getting at if the question is kind of the so-called formal feminist movement, I would say I don't really care. Okay, um, to me the real issue is what 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 are working class women looking at and organizing, both broadly and Bessemer, Alabama itself. Um, if if the question is containing critique of, we can say a, a middle class white feminist movement, critique well made, and to me the the important thing once again is looking at working class women. Who may be in the warehouse because they have to be there, or maybe at McDonald's or maybe doing two or three jobs? That's the question. And the whole issue is how do you just if we talk about looking at class within the black community and and kind of the black freedom movement, it's also important to look at class within the women's movement as well. And without that, um, the women will be very be very weak and won't be very powerful.
1: Um, so the question actually comes from one of the great organizers in the country, Santawa. And Kroomer Tourray, who's based in Philadelphia. And it definitely was a critique um and someone who had long, long history. And I just want to add to that critique because you know part of, I think uh, what she's getting at, too, is that there was, and still is. It depends on where you go and who you talk to. Um, if you go to, to let me go two different directions, contemporarily speaking. The movement for black lives most radical visionary statement was drafted almost entirely, primarily by feminists, black feminists. Uh, queer, straight, trans, um, lawyers, and so many of them, some of them my former students, and I, I know who they are, you know, um, who I learn from all the time. And so that is the feminist position. I mean, it's just not the one that we are associated with in terms of the kind of Mainstream media, uh, and so Barbara Ransby's wonderful book, you know, uh, making Black Lives Matter, making Black all Black Lives Matter, you know, tells the story of these foundational feminist organizers in BYP one hundred, in um, uh, in Movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, uh, in Sada's daughters, Ella's daughters, all these different organizations. That's where that's where feminism is. It's bipop. Feminism, it's you know, Indigenous feminism. That to me is is, and, and these are the folks who I think are on the front lines in terms of supporting the workers in Amazon, but also drawing the, the same connections that Asante Wa raises, saying that you know you can't separate the struggle over a question of childcare uh, and and women's unpaid labor um, wh- from the question of what it means to get paid you know less than a living wage. And those things are really connected. Um, and one thing I just wanted to throw out there since I have the mic <laughs> is that you know there are there's so many organizations that we don't give credit to who are right behind the scenes making possible some of these movements. And I wanna just hold up, like Black Workers for Justice, for example, or the Southern Workers Assembly, these were organizations that Bring together some of the best, most radical Black thinkers um, and activists and organizers who are really building labor and have been doing it for a long time. And one of the reasons we know about, or one of the reasons that the the best of workers even became national news, was because of the Southern Workers Assembly and Black Workers for Justice. They put they put it out there from from the get go. And so I think that you know one of the things that and what's great about the show and our conversation is that there's an alternative history being made that doesn't get documented in the same way and it's our responsibility to document these movements and see who they are and see what's going on and that would then remind us of a previous history and that is if you look at even the heyday of of feminism in the 1960s and 70s you had like the chicago socialist feminist union who if you look at their the list of of demands and and, and, just their their platform had all the important things that matter, deeply anti-racist, anti-capitalist, visionary. If you take the Combahee River Collective, uh, which is even a better example, Combahee River Collective was a socialist organization, socialist formation, um, not as Barbara Smith said the other day, we're on a panel with her, not just a think tank, but a group of women who are fighting serial murders of Black women in Roxbury and fighting for a kind of politics that they called identity politics that was about rolling back all forms of oppression. That's how they understood their identity, saying that as women, as queer people, as workers, as residents, as urban residents, as young and old people, as elders and students, we bring everything with us in our fight and the experiences that we, we undergo, we endure, are the the ones that we're trying to fight back against, you know? And that fundamentally is the kind of kind of feminism I think that um, that we want, you know, that Asantawa is sort of ra- you know, suggesting that we raise up that's not being raised up in the same way.
0: I, I would only add, um, is how do you turn the, the the important ideas, correct ideas into real power? Into material force, um, I kind of use the example that, that um, I, I'm, I'm kind of old. I'm older than I think anyone on the everyone here on the screen, you say, by a couple of years. And I was engaged in some of the, the the battles around race and class back in the good old days of, of the '70s, the early '70s. And I remember we had a, a major conference at Howard University in '74. And obviously my side, the class folk kicked their ass, okay? but the, the, But the end was Farrakhan and Kwanzaa. And, and so the question is always, how do you take ideas that are largely correct and turn them into material force? And that gets back to the idea, of, I mentioned of John Lewis and SNCC, of actually listening to people and talking to people and building those deep roots. So now the same focus on doing that, by the way. We want to elevate that being an important part of things. Now, I say sometimes in my, in my many snarker comments, that oftentimes we speak truth to power, and power don't want to listen. And, and, and the question simply is, how do we have capacity to bend people's will to our side? that the right had the capacity at certain times to say two, two is five, and what are gonna do about it? And we couldn't do anything about it at all. And so I wanna always raise the question of how do you turn the ideas and the analysis and our initial organizing into more powerful organizing? It's, to me, it's always the vital question that we need to address and answer.
2: Yeah, I would just say, like when we say like, the feminist movement, I'm kind of like, is there one? I mean, is there a thing that is like just a feminist movement? Because like Movement for Black Lives is a feminist movement, right? Like Robin was saying, all of these women who are leading and making incredibly complicated, nuanced feminist demands um, that, you know, one of the only workers from Bessemer who's been on the record and been speaking publicly is a Black woman, right? It's Jennifer Bates. Um, She's been on TV. She was on Democracy Now! the morning that I was on. Um, And I was talking to... A researcher earlier today about actually about sort of the feminization of warehouse work, right? That this is now a workforce that is full of women like Jennifer Bates. And we have to take this seriously as a place where women are working and organizing. And what are the specific concerns that women have in this workplace? What does it mean to be a woman wandering around a warehouse the size of multiple football fields? mostly by yourself all day? And what are the specific concerns you might have that some of your male coworkers might not pick up on? Um, and how are we talking about all of these things in a way that makes sh- clear that they are also central to the demands of these workers and not sort of incidental to what's happening? Um, there are 800 and something nurses on strike in Massachusetts right now who've been on strike now for this is their fifth week, um, which is rare in this country, in case anybody who's not a nurse's strike nerd the way I am. Nurses strikes are usually limited time strikes because nurses are concerned about their patients. That this got that far and they are still out five weeks in is a really big deal. Um, And this is, right, incredibly gendered work incredibly important work to talk about in these moments, necessary work, and um, work that too often gets left out of conversations about worker power, even when teachers and nurses have basically been the most militant workers in the labor movement for the last 10 years. Yes, I said it. Um, so,
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, was just, I mean, I was just thinking about the Red
2: for Ed strikes, uh, you know,
3: strike wavelet that sort of swept the country um, a couple of years ago. And, and also just um, the way, uh, when we think about the labor movement today, I think, um, you know, there are sort of notions about the labor movement that are somewhat static and historical. And like, it's important to recognize that, um, you know, even uh, among unionized uh, Black workers, Um, you know, that's, that's a workforce that has um, also um, been subject to the same demographic shifts as the workforce as a whole. So um, black union workers were, uh, are much more likely today uh, to be women and to be immigrants than they were in uh, the, you know, a generation ago, certainly. Right. And so, um, you know, we see um, the reality of workers' lives becoming more and more intersectional, even if our political rhetoric and uh, maybe some of the, um, uh, somewhat uh, um, outmoded uh, ways that we talk about the labor movement um, maybe have have yet to um, catch up with that reality, right? So um, a lot of this stuff is already happening on the ground. Um, we just sort of need to find a way to um, articulate it and kind of marshal, kind of harness that that energy. And um, whether you call it feminism or anything else, right? Um, um, the lived experience of of um, the the women on the front lines uh, certainly speaks to all of that.
1: So I could put in a plug for a new book that just came out by Gabriel Winant. It's called um, Crucible of Care. Um, the Rise of Healthcare and the Making of a New Working Class. Fall of Industry, The Rise of Healthcare and the Making of a New Working Class. It's a great book that actually makes a lot of these connections in terms of what happened at the end of the industrial era, um, which is not over, but just exported. <laughs> um, and then the rise of 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 care work, nurses nurses in particular. Um and it's a it's a really powerful book so I would suggest that.
2: Uh, it's um I actually reviewed that book for a Book Forum. So um we'll share a link to that. But so we wanted to Did you to like come back. it? I loved it. I loved okay. it. It's a great book. Um Yeah, it's a subject I'm obsessed with. So we wanted to come back to this question, which Margie Clark asked really early on, and we did not forget about, but we did think it would be a good place to sort of come to at the end. So Margie asks, can you elaborate on global worker organizing against global companies like Amazon, like the minimum corporate tax Janet Yellen is talking about? Are there minimum working conditions that international actions could target?
3: Um global worker organizing against global companies like Amazon, um, probably wouldn't surprise many of the people in the audience to know that, um, you know, Amazon is unionized in plenty of other countries. Um, so in some ways, um, uh, global Amazon workers may be well ahead of, of, uh, workers here in that regard. But, um, but I, I do think that there's increasingly, um, dialogue and and kind of uh, transnational organizing going on um, different sectors of the labor movement around Amazon and also looking at um, sort of global just-in-time production and also an increasing emphasis on supply chain organizing. Um, So when we think about logistics, right, we're also thinking about sort of how the mechanics of global capitalism works, right, and where can we find the pressure points and the choke points, right, Um, uh, uh, you know, um aside from the Suez canal, right? Uh, where we can where we can really um where we can really really upend things, right? and and also, um, yeah, um, where workers can find their power, at, you know, at different, um, at very targeted points in the economy, and and you can't do that without some form of, of uh, coordination. And going back to Stephen's point about it's not technology, but about who controls the technology. Technology has, in many ways, enabled um, a lot of that organizing to take place. Um, so you know that that chapter is is still being written. Um, but I, I do think that as people are becoming more aware global capitalism certainly since um you know the turn of the 21st century right there's increasingly a dialogue around uh, organizing against corporations and i think that um uh, sort of uh, combining um uh, this uh, this idea of what it means to be a uh, um, organizing labor, um, under global capitalism, um, also, uh, you know, that, that can be combined very effectively with the critique of, um, global inequality and how, um, so much power and capital is amassed in, um, in just, you know, a handful of companies or even individuals, right, and, um, you know, speaking of Jeff Bezos, so, um, so, yeah, I think, um, the dialogue around inequality and, um, the dialogue around, um, what workers can do within that, um, is really critical because um, oftentimes when you look at a company like Amazon, it looks like such a gigantic behemoth that it's really difficult to think about ways that individuals or even collectives of individuals can um, try to exert power against that. But, you know, it's happening.
2: I I know one...
0: I'm sorry. I know we're winding down, but, um, but I thought what you, t- you were talking about global capitalism. To me, one of the insights of racial capitalism, and I wish we could have spent more time on it, by the way, that capitalism has always been global. It's not a new phenomenon. And I think that's an important insight, not just a, a rhetorical insight, but a one looking at practical implications. So to me, it, that it's very, very important to talk about kind of the, the global tentacles today of capitalism it's very hard to chop off the tentacles when people, when the barbarians are at the gate of the capital, and and so it's very important to talk about how do we make sure we build power, in the United States, to actually main, to have some democratic barricades and to, and to expand them as well. So, uh,
1: can I just weigh in on this uh, question? It's, it's such an important question. Um, one, it's true, capital has always been global and. Right now it's so flexible. One of the big fears about the warehouse in Bessemer, uh, though it's probably unlikely but not impossible, is that Amazon would just leave. You know, would just say, look, you want a union? We're just not gonna be here. Um, They can't leave every state. Uh, But, you know, flexibility is really an issue. Um, But the other thing that's an issue is, you know, because I've been thinking about the second part of the question about Janet Janet Yellen and the whole you know sort of global corporate tax issue. You know, we we have to to go back to like a kind of old-fashioned idea of anti-imperialism. Uh, because in fighting, you know, it's one thing to 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 sort of promote transnational union organizing, that's really, really important. It's another thing when you have uh, countries with regimes that actually have very strong labor laws, very strong minimum wage laws, very strong environmental laws. And we experience experienced a history of living in this country that has overthrown those regimes, overthrown those, com- those countries' uh, leadership. And so part of fighting you know, for workers is fighting for you know, s- states in other places where workers actually are fighting for their rights within the state. Um and so that's 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 a small part. of it. That's not the only thing. But that's something we really, really have to um to consider being anti imperialist and standing in solidarity against forms of US intervention.
2: So we will only yes, Chen Jirai, thank you. Um I once upon a time had a long conversation back when we could go to bars, remember bars? I miss those, um, with Jen Jirai about the Oud center, which has been organizing, um, the Somali migrant workers in Minnesota around Amazon and that they were the first ones to get Amazon to the bargaining table and they did it over prayer time and respect f- and accommodations for their fasting during Ramadan. And I mean, I I love to bring that story up because every time people are like, oh, you should only organize workers around bread and butter issues. And I was like, yeah, I guess we got Amazon to bargain though. Um, and these are in many cases, new immigrants, right? But the organizing in that community that's based in um, an understanding of the particular needs of those workers, the particular um, networks and histories of solidarity that come you know, with migrant communities, all of that. Um, and I was just thinking, again, while we're talking about global and also local with Amazon, is that like Amazon's business model, well, I mean, its main business model is Amazon Web Services, which is another thing that we have to figure out how to break. But its business model of retail is delivering as fast as possible, which basically means they don't have too many places they can go if they close one warehouse. You know, If they wanna deliver in Birmingham, they need a warehouse in Birmingham. They could maybe close this one in Bessemer, but they can't go that far. Um, and this is an insight of course, that was made to me by one of those um, Minneapolis, Amazon workers, like we, they can't outsource us the same way they could outsource the production. Um, I still wanna figure out how we get another ship stuck in the Suez Canal though. Um so I know that we're working on um, it. Yes. <laughs> right. Um so I know we've been talking out to all of you for a while. I wanted to give everyone a chance if you had any last things to say, Robin, Stephen, Michelle, before we wrap up.
0: Well, a couple of things. Um one, I'm glad we're here and thanks so much, Robin and Michelle and Sarah for joining us. This has been a phenomenal experience and to be continued, by the way. It's the question of of building black worker power and building real power. To me, I want, want to kind of lead in with that. You know, um, I, I and I really say I'm cynical, snarky, but I think back to some of our ways we have very, very bad debates on race versus class, looking at black folks and our conditions, and people are saying, "Oh my God, the New Deal was racist." And I said, "Like, wait a second, y'all. Policies come from power." If you told me that a place where, as a, as a point in this country's history where black folks couldn't vote and old white folk who were straight up racist were in charge, well, duh, can gonna be racist, y'all. It's no insight. That's kind of common sense. And so the question is simply, how do you build power to change the world? And, and then the last thing, given that, as my good friend Jane McAlevey talks about, an effort she was doing in Philadelphia organizing nurses, and they nurses. And they charted out the entire workforce and they found that the main department that was stopping the drive, the lead worker there was a Black woman who was fiercely anti-union, by the way. But they didn't throw up their hands. Simply said, let's roll up our sleeves and do the work. And they talked to her. They found out what issues she could not win on her own with her own kind of personal power and said, wait a second, if you join with us, we can change the world that you want to change. So that kind of roll up your sleeves do the organizing, not the shouting, not the sloganeering. That's how you build power that's lasting. And so I hope that we can continue to do that do more of that and, um, have a good time doing it. Y'all. Thanks a lot.
3: Um, and I just, before we go, I mean, we, we don't know, obviously, um, the, the fate of this union election, but, um, I think we shouldn't be, uh, um, excessively humble or pessimistic about what has taken place over the last uh, several weeks. Um, um, you know, if, if, uh, if the retail workers uh, lose the selection it'll of course be very disappointing but um uh, amazon um if they lose i mean they will be absolutely terrified and, and they they are currently terrified so it's important to um, recognize i think that um, um that there are ways to um uh to really back amazon into a corner um we've been talking about how amazon is this uh, huge you know hegemonic force and it is but um but if we're um, smart and willing to take calculated risks, um, um, I think it's, uh, uh, it's important not to, uh, underestimate, right, what, um, ordinary workers, uh, can be capable of, and, and, um, it helps, of course, that we're in a, some, in a somewhat more labor, slightly more labor-friendly political atmosphere, but we're on the verge of, um, perhaps, um, um, having the PRO Act, which is, um, you know, uh, Kind of a big deal for uh, you know for people who uh, care about sort of the legal side of things, right? Um, and uh, you know, uh, if if something like the PRO Act were in place, then um, uh, the types of uh, practices that Amazon engages in, which are pretty standard for um, for most large corporations these days, um, many of them would be would be outlawed, and that would really sort of change the landscape that we're looking at. Um, you know, just speaking of state interventions that can change the lives of working people. So, um, yeah, um, things aren't all that bad, I guess.
2: Robin.
1: When we fight, we win. My sister Makani Temba taught me that. That's it. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you to Robin D.G. Kelly for being here with us. Stephen Pitts of Black Work Talk and everyone who works on Black Work Talk and an organizing upgrade. And uh, I am Sarah Jaffe, Michelle Chen as my co-host, and uh, thank you all for being here.
0: That was wonderful. It was great to talk with Robin, Michelle, and Sarah. I can't wait to partner with the folks at Belabored again. I hope to get Robin back on this show in the near future. There's so much more to dig into. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests, future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at steven at blackworktalk.com. I promise to get back to you. Until the next episode, stay safe and be well.